You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Today we are visiting with Dr. Thomas Senor, professor of philosophy at the University of Arkansas. Professor Senor's primary areas of research are philosophy of religion and epistemology, the study of how we come to know things, how we go about distinguishing between justified belief and mere opinion. Professor Senor has served as president of the Southwest Philosophical Society, twice been on the executive committee of the Society of Christian Philosophers, and is on the editorial board of the journal Religious Studies. He has also recently become the editor of Faith and Philosophy, the journal of the Society of Christian Philosophers. The Faith and Philosophy Journal is a peer-reviewed scholarly journal which encourages discussion among a wide variety of theological and philosophical perspectives that fall largely within the philosophy of religion. Faith and Philosophy Journal seeks critical and reflective self-understanding of the Christian faith carried out in dialogue with those who share its Christian commitment, as well as with those who do not, and it serves the Christian community by articulating Christian faith in a manner that withstands rigorous examination and by exploring the implications of the Christian faith for all aspects of human life. Dr. Senor's wife, Georgia Senor, is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, who also has a doctor of ministry from McCormick Seminary. So, welcome Dr. Senor to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, I'd like to begin by asking you to give us your understanding of the relationship between Christianity and philosophy. Some might think that philosophy and Christianity or philosophy and religion are actually two different things, but you see them as being interrelated. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about this. Sure. Yeah. When I, so one of the classes I teach is called philosophy of religion. And I often have people on the first day of class saying, you know, I think I have an idea of what philosophy is. I know what religion is and what, what would philosophy of religion be? Um, so philosophy of religion generally is the kind of philosophical study of religious claims. Um, so in, in philosophy of religion, one of the main topics is, you know, what reason is there to believe in God? Are there good mm-hmm. arguments that you can concoct uh, that don't depend on revelation or scripture or anything like that, um, that will, you know, ideally demonstrate that there is a God? Um, and if not demonstrate, maybe make more probable than not. Um, probability theory comes into some of these arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there are arguments against God's existence, the main one being the problem of evil. Um, so in a philosophy of religion class, you talk about that. Um, but more generally, I guess the relationship, um, as far as I'm concerned, between philosophy and religion and, and what it is to be you know, a Christian philosopher you know, so I'm interested in a lot of areas of philosophy that don't really have any obvious direct bearing on my Christian faith. So uh, my work in epistemology is mostly independent of, I mean, I do a little work in the epistemology of religious belief, but I also do just straightforward epistemology. Um, the epistemology of memory is something I kind of write about. Um, and that's more or less independent of kind of, you know, my Christian convictions and, and philosophical interests in Christianity. But there's been, you know, over the history of, of philosophy, there have been, you know, there were there were whole periods where almost everybody who was a philosopher was also a theologian in the medieval times. Um, so the relationship between philosophy and theology and and philosophy and and faith um, is is really old. And so, you know, we're just kind of kind of keeping up that tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a lot of different perspectives that people have. So, I mean, I. I never really wanted to be um, an apologist. There's some people get into philosophy who are Christians because they they see their goal as sort of philosophically defending the Christian faith. Uh And I don't have anything against that. um, But I was more interested in just sort of understanding my faith philosophically. And that's kind of what initially sort of drove me into wanting to be a philosophy professor. Well, one of the reasons you came up on my uh, radar screen is because I guess almost 10 years ago now, I read a book by a Christian philosopher named Thomas Talbot. And the name of the book was The Inescapable Love of God. 
And on the back of that book, you give, the, you know, their recommendations on the back of that book. And your recommendation says, The Inescapable Love of God is an important book. Its author, Thomas Talbot, is the leading defender of Christian universalism in the philosophical world. But this is in no way an academic work. Rather, it is a remarkable combination of memoir, biblical exegesis, and popular philosophy. Talbot argues compellingly that the love of God will prevail for all whom God loves, that is, for everyone. And so uh, that was an important moment for me in in which I, I uh, Talbot, to me, was, here was this, uh, this sincere Christian trained in philosophy, sort of bringing to me the best of philosophical reasoning to his Christian faith. And, and I just noticed that that really made his overall argument much more powerful, I thought. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I just thought, okay, well, that's really important to be able to make sure that whatever you're arguing from a Christian perspective is also philosophically uh, coherent. Right. So right. I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about when you begin to interact with uh, Talbot's book and sort of this Christian philosophical argument for a Christian universalism. Was that was Talbot the one that introduced you to that, or had you known about it before that? That's a, that's a really good question. I also, I don't, I mean, I was raised in a, a very evangelical, conservative evangelical church. Um, and, you know, was a, was a Christian growing up. Um, I think it never occurred to me too much to, to question the the doctrine of hell, I didn't like the doctrine, but I mean, you know, it was kind of part of the package that that you sign up for. I think is kind of how I thought about it. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think I first became aware of, of Tom's work. Um, it, so he had a paper in, in Faith and Philosophy in 1990 um, called "The Doctrine of Everlasting Punishment," and I, I think that was the first paper of his that I read. Um, and on the doctrine of, of hell um, or everlasting punishment. Uh, and then I kind of started reading other things. He published in the, through the 90s kind of a lot in faith and philosophy, religious studies, uh, other mm-hmm. academic journals. Um, and so what became the philosophical stuff in the book um, was if you were a philosopher and you were kind of reading his work on you know, the problem of hell, um, you were pretty familiar with these arguments. And in fact, the arguments are, I mean, I, I think I think as a work of public philosophy, um, the the level of um, rigor of the arguments in the inescapable love of God seems to me at least just right. The level of rigor in the peer-reviewed academic papers is even stronger, of course. Um, mm-hmm. So, it, you know, I remember, I remember actually talking, I, I don't know when I first met him, we, you know, kind of, move in some of the same academic circles and I would see him at conferences and all. Um, and I, you know, I remember him saying he was having a hard time finding a publisher for. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I knew it wasn't because it wasn't a good book because actually I had read a draft of it. Um, and you know, it, um, was sort of too conservative for more liberal religious presses and too out there, I guess, for more conservative presses. Um, but yeah, so sort of through the, the, the 90s and early, and then I, I teach a course uh, at the University of Arkansas, um, like every other year, called Philosophy and the Christian Faith. Um, mm-hmm. And we look at particular doctrines in Christianity, sort of from a philosophical perspective. And so one mm-hmm. is hell, um, and we always read some of Talbot's stuff on that. Um, so I guess that was kind of how, I mean, my work in grad school and then as a, again, in my professional life, um, has been divided sort of between epistemology and philosophy of religion. And in particular in philosophy of religion, I have been interested uh, in what people are kind of now calling um, analytic philosophical theology. Um, so it's a kind of f- philosophical work informed by, by analytic philosophy and using the tools of analytic philosophy to look at um, particularly Christian, in this case, doctrines like the atonement or the incarnation or hell or the trinity, um, and so I've, it was, you know, being interested in hell came pretty, pretty easily given my interest right. in the philosophical, uh, reflection on Christian doctrines. Well, what I noticed is that like, for instance, if I were, ta- if I was talking to people about like the topic of grace, I could say, well, do you believe that, uh, uh salvation is by grace alone? And they would say, well, yeah, I think, I think I believe that. I 
think I've heard sermons on that, and we sing songs of saved, saved by grace. I think I amazing grace saved. Yeah, I think I, uh, I think I believe that. And I'd say, well, do you think God gives grace to all? And they would say, oh yeah, God so loved the world that He gave us. You know, He loves everybody. He wants everybody to be saved. And I would say, well, do you think some people are going to be lost in some kind of hell forever where they're annihilated or they're tormented forever? And they said, well, yeah, I mean, that's in the Bible, too. I said, OK, well, well, but we've got now we've got a philosophical problem on our hands because we've got a logical problem that those all of those three statements, even though they can be argued uh, from uh, from the Bible and strong cases have been made by theologians through the years on all of these for in, in favor of all of these positions, we actually can't hold all three of these positions without creating a logical conflict. Right. And so, and so for me then, you know, philosoph- philosophy sort of comes in. It's philosophy is, for, you know, to use a baseball metaphor and you like baseball. Uh, we talked about earlier, you like right. baseball. To me, baseball is a little bit like the, um- I mean, philosophy is a little bit like the umpire. In the theological argument, you know, it's, it, you know, it calls balls and strikes, you know, like, okay, well, this is, this is coherent. This doesn't seem too coherent to me. So uh, to me, that's an important part of um, the, the contribution that philosophy makes is it comes along and it just asks the question, right. is what's being said here actually coherent or right. not? Right. Could you say yeah, something that, about that? Yeah. I mean, that definitely is um, one of the main things that you do as a, a philosopher who works in religious matters um, is, is yeah, you test for logical consistency and coherence. You also try to, again, at least if you're working in the analytic tradition, just get crystal clear on what the claims are. And so mm-hmm. you make a claim like, you know, um, just pull, you know, when you mentioned you know, God uh, wills to save everyone. Well, what does that really mean? Does that mean that God will do God's very best to save everyone? Does that mean that God, you know, would like it to work out that way? Um, there, right. there are lots of different things that that particular phrase could mean. And so it's the job of the, uh, you know, the philosopher of religion to kind of try to think about what the various possibilities are um, and which ones may be may have consistency problems with other claims within the religious tradition or, or doctrines. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really where you know there's there's still a fair bit of work done on arguments for and against God's uh, existence. Um, then of course in philosophy of religion, there's a fair bit of sort of historical stuff. Uh, you know, papers and books about Thomas Aquinas or Augustine or people like that. Yeah, but the, I think the majority of it is just trying to kind of see where there are potential conflicts. And then, especially if you are someone who's committed to the faith, you know, what, what can we say to try to make our, our faith logically consistent? Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, no, that, that's absolutely, I think, you know, right about what philosophers are doing when they look at doctrines. Well, one of the things that's uh, one of the, the thinkers that I really enjoy, Christian thinkers that I'm really enjoying now is David Bentley Hart. And he does a good job of putting together biblical exegesis and philosophy and and the uh, classics and thinking about ancient uh, cultures. And, you know, he, he has a really powerful way of putting all of that together. Uh, but in his book, That All Shall Be Saved, he makes arguments along the lines of, well, if God is the is the first cause of all that is, then everything logically then flows for that. And then secondary, all the secondary things, whether or not they are um, uh, directly caused or indirectly come about directly or indirectly, all finally resolve back to the first cause. And just just starting to think that way helped me to kind of clarify my thinking. Okay, so what am I saying that God, in my conception of God, what is God bringing to the table in creation? What is God's what is God's desire? And if there are no external things impending uh, impinging upon God, then then it seems, as David Bentley Hart argues, that that the outcome of creation is not just how things turn out, but is also the revelation of the moral character of God. It's mm-hmm. so that the so that the, the 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 understanding of what was going on in the beginning only really becomes clear at the end. And if the and if the and if at the end there is any evil that is unaddressed or still there's any residual evil, well then that rebounds all the way back to the very beginning and creates a, you know sort of a logical feedback loop. 
mm-hmm. that becomes mm-hmm. problematic. And so just that way of thinking about it, as I started then looking at my, as I was looking at my, my biblical studies, what I was trying to do is say, okay, how can I do a theology that where I can show, I can show an argument for it scripturally, theologically, but it's, but it also then has that philosophical cohesiveness mm-hmm. um, that I'm, that I'm looking for. And uh, I don't know what, is, what does all of that bring to mind for you? Well, I mean, the, I'm not sure, and, and I confess I've not read uh, Hart's book yet, um, but I'm not sure I fully get what the primary and secondary uh, causes. I mean, I know how that t- those terms are used. You know, sort yeah, of well, in, he just says, you know, like, in, well, like for instance, in um, if, if God is the, is the primary cause of all that is, you know, Calvinism says, okay, God did not in, in, in all are not saved because God in the prime in, in the primary cause of things did not want did not determine right. that that would happen, and then the Arminian claim comes along. If you're Protestant, it says, well, uh, God desired that they would all be saved, but it but if it doesn't happen at the end, then right. it's hard to right. see how God really and truly desired it at the beginning. No matter what we may say about it, because if God knows, if we say that God desires that all would be saved, but goes into creation knowing from the beginning that all will not be saved, you still end up with a logical problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess. I mean, th- this will get you know into the the weeds of free will, probably here, right? Right. Well, that's a good that's a good discussion to have too. <laughs> right. Well, I was going to say, you know, I mean, what, what um, the point that that you're saying Hart makes is certainly a point that that Talbot has made a lot, right? Yeah. Which is that if you know if you have um, you know, at the end of things, if you have, especially if it ends up being a relatively small group of people who get to enjoy God's presence forever, and right. a great majority of people are burning in hell, um, how does that vindicate sort of God's creative intentions? Um, right. You know, I, I can hear Calvin. I can hear my Calvinist friends saying, "Well, you know, God is declaring God's holiness by burning the people in hell." But that doesn't. That's never really resonated with me very much. Um, that kind of response. But, yeah, I think what what Hart what Hart argues is that it's not just um, that. Well, you've got a problem if even if even one might not be saved. Mm-hmm. Because even even introducing the, the the possibility that even one could be lost, uh, you know, that's you've already wagered. The mm-hmm. die has already been cast, you know. Mm-hmm. And so if we're going to begin with absolute goodness, then there can't be even the possibility of of ultimate loss or ruin that would enter in for even one, because that then would rebound back through all of creation. Because why would God take that those kinds of chances or something? That, yeah, well, it's it, the, the, well the sort of some, when I'm talking with people about this, it would be like if you were kids and you were with you're taking a trip with your parents. It was across country, and you get there, and at the end, your parents are talking to each other and they're saying, "Wow, I'm glad we made that. I didn't know if we were going to make it or not." And you didn't know that you were all along being exposed to this great risk for a trip that could have ended in tragedy. Uh, your parents didn't let you know about that. So, you know, the idea at the end of creation, the last person, what crosses the finish line, if all are finally saved and God says, "Phew, I wasn't sure that was going to happen or not. Right. You know, that would make me say, wait, wait a second. What do you mean you didn't know <laughs> if right. you didn't know if this was going to happen or not? Right, right. Well, of course, the you know the proponents of um, of kind of the, the contemporary philosophical proponents of hell these days um, will emphasize you know the the importance of what in philosophy we call libertarian free will, or as sometimes that's what it's called, right? So the right. I, the idea that we have uh, the ability to make choices that are not predetermined by God or our past or anything. So if you're, if you're free in this kind of important deep sense, and it's gotta be the case that, you know, if you're considering whether do, and, and I'm now we're talking about people's ultimate salvations, but in the standard free will debate, it can be something simple as, you know, deciding whether to go see a movie or not. And if you're doing right. that freely, the thought is if you're again someone who goes under the the label of libertarian um, then you think that 
it when you kind of made that decision or when you left to go to the movie, it was really possible that either you would do that or it was possible that you wouldn't do that. And those those two options were really open to you at the time you made the decision. Mm-hmm. So that the you know so and the, this is a, a, a an account of free will that's supposed to be and is in fact inconsistent with like determinism. Because if determinism of any kind is true, then if you're determined in the sense the, the, that determinism uh, is relevant to, um, say, to go to the movie that night, if the past and the laws of nature or the will of God or whatever it is that's determining things has determined that that's going to be your choice, then according to the libertarian, even if you feel like you're doing it of your own free will, if it really has been kind of determined by either laws of physics and the positions of matter or God's intention, um, then you're not really free. The, the libertarian will say that if if your choice has in any way been predetermined, like, again, by God's will or by physics and your material makeup, um, then you're not free. So the condition of freedom is a condition the libertarian insists on and okay. insists that if determinism is true, then you lack that. You lack that that kind of freedom. Yeah, and and for for a long time that was that was really what kept me from uh, Christian universalism was because I had the problem that it uh, that it limited free will. But uh, after reading um, uh, Thomas Talbot's um, way of working through the problems with libertarian free will, and David Bentley Hart also works through the problems with libertarian free will that that I've come to the conclusion that, that, that the, the position of libertarian free will uh, has a fundamental uh, incoherence because if we are truly libertarian and we could choose anything, any, anything, any one thing, just as much as we could choose any other thing, then anything that we choose could be anything that we choose. And so it, it becomes fundamentally incoherent. So in other words, there has to be a telos, there has to be an end for anything to be coherent. It has to move be moving towards a direction. So a decision that lacks any end, any telos, is just it's just a random act. For something to be a free decision, it has to be it has to move towards its intended end. And if we are in fact created uh, to have a telos, if that's given to us, and if we're in a creation that in fact has a telos, then on, the only freedom is really in discovering that direction so that it's not a limitation of our free will to discover the end towards which we have been created, especially that end being love. That's just, that's just being freed from delusions. Uh, like, in, like if you're dealing with somebody who's got an addiction, they may be underneath the powerful delusion that their addiction is really doing, is really their friend when it's really their enemy. And so you're not denying their free will by freeing them from the delusion that their addiction is actually killing them. Um, so, so anyway, that's that's one of the things that's that's given me that, that's made me become suspicious of the libertarian um, libertarian model of free will. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I don't see the need. I guess I mean for incorporating the concepts like telios into into the particulars of what the libertarian is saying um and i didn't quite see where there was an inconsistency there so all all libertarian wants to say and and libertarian doesn't say you know you're free only if you can do anything or if you're free only if you have you know a huge range of options um it's it's a very specific thing so if i'm choosing to go to you know go to a movie on saturday night versus say staying home um, if I'm free, really free, the libertarian thinks that when I make that decision, you know, on Saturday night, and I start to head out the door or I don't, that it would, I could really genuinely have either gone to the movie, given the way the world has been up to that moment, um, and given God's intentions up till that moment, or I could have stayed home. And, and so it's just a kind of a necessary condition. And there may be other things that have to be added to make it, a, as it were, a sufficient condition of a significant kind of free action okay so okay so so just so it's so it's in contrast to the compatibilist conception of freedom which basically says this is a you know terrible simple uh, oversimplization but 
um, that you're free, you know, if you're kind of doing what you want to do. So if my, if I go to the movies, not because someone kidnaps me and takes me to the movies, but I kind of think about it and decide, yeah, I want to go to the movies instead of staying home tonight. Um, then that's just what it is to be free. And it doesn't matter whether God has determined from the beginning of the universe that I'm going to decide I want to go to a movie that night. Um, if I, if, if, if the kind of immediate cause of my going to the movie is my deciding that's what I want to do, then I'm free. Whereas the libertarian will say, well, maybe your decision is part of, is, is necessary for being free. But if, in fact, you know, God had decided before the beginning of creation that you were going to choose to go to a movie on Saturday night, then you couldn't really have done otherwise. And so you're not genuinely free. I would say like with Tom, like when Talbot argues, he sometimes uses the example of a, of a chess game, you know, and so we're free in a sense to make the moves that we want. But the way that creation works is that there are certain moves that when we make them provide us with very clear feedback that we are not on the right track. Hmm. And so while going to the movie or not going to the movie uh, might be, you know, a negligible kind of decision. There are certain decisions like the decision to commit a murder or to do something horrible that when we do those things, uh, we find out pretty quickly that we're, that, that, that negative consequences are beginning to follow from that. And so we learn that we're in a creation over time through experience. We learn that there are certain decisions that, yes, we can make them, but then it also sets into motion negative consequences which follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I recognize that. I, I, I guess what I'm just trying to, because um, ultimately I think I'm, I'm on Talbot's side of all this. Um, but I mean, I do, I do feel like the position that, for instance, Jerry Walls argues for in his book, The Logic of Damnation, um, mm-hmm. and the position that is, again, tends to be um, the main kind of current offering, at least in philosophy, that if you're going to want to defend the idea of eternal separation from God. Um, so Mar- Marilyn Adams, a, a unfortunately now deceased uh, philosopher and, and medieval scholar, um, in writing on this stuff, made a distinction between what she called grim hell and mild hell. Uh, <laughs> grim hell versus mild hell. Okay. Right. So grim hell is sort of the old school hell where you're sent to hell as, as punishment by God. It's certainly not anything you choose. Um, so you're going against your will, you're being punished for eternity, and it's just really awful and, and painful. Um, that's grim hell. So think of Augustine or something like that. Uh-huh. Um Mild hell, think of, again, if people know about this at all, but, you know, C.S. Lewis. So on mild hell, what mild hell is, is essentially the person's not not accepting reconciliation with God, um, making the free choice. And again, the, the emphasis here, and in fairness to, you know, the, uh, the defenders of, of this concept of hell, um, the concept of, you know, having a free choice and having your final destination be in some way kind of fundamentally up to you is at least, I think, on the face of it, pretty attractive kind of idea. Right. So I think, on, yeah, on the face of it, it, it involves, I think, a kind of insanity that's right. inher- well, inherent. You know, so it's a how can how can a decision be free when it involves, a, you know, a kind of insanity? Right. But okay, so so the mild hell though will say um, view will say you know so the person is not really being punished. It's it's just the consequences of not accepting reconciliation from God, um, and the person is sort of choosing it. It's not so much God sending them to hell; it's that the person is choosing separation from God. Um, and and I think a thing that is a a problem for the mild hell proponent is uh-huh. you need to have it. If if mild hell is too good and too not unpleasant, it's not going to sound much like hell. If it's separation from God, but, you know, you kind of go on. You live like an atheist lives here or something. Um, you mm-hmm. don't get the beatific vision. You don't get eternal bliss. But, you know, it's not so bad. Then, then I think people might reasonably say, you're just not talking about hell anymore. Um, on the other hand, if you make it, if you would try to adjust the other way and you say, yeah, it's got to have some, you know, it's got to be pretty nasty then you're going to lose the idea that people might freely choose this. So I kind of feel like if you're going to, if you're arguing for this kind of mild hell view, which I can, I know you're not arguing for, but many do, um, yeah. 
there there is a kind of a fine line you have to walk because make it make it too bad and then you're not going to be able to make any good claim that people would ever freely choose that make it not bad enough and it's not going to sound anything like hell yeah i think i think the, the way i i work through that a couple of different ways one is that i have a conception of god that i that i argue uh, that i argue biblically and one of the part of it and i share this with the origin of alexandria <laughs> is that that my understanding is that god is not just a God of love, but is a God of love who is determined to be all in all. Finally, so that the that God's ultimate purpose in creation is to share this love with all of God's children. So if that's the final purpose of God, then then everything in creation ultimately tends towards the realization of that of that final of that final good. And so that the problem is is even if the person in mild hell is satisfied with mild hell, God isn't satisfied with that. Mm-hmm. And to fail and, and so that then we get into the issue about the sovereignty of God and what is God finally up to? And if God is finally up to the idea that all would be freed uh, from the delusions that keep them from experiencing the true beauty of of union with God. Uh, right. So uh, David Bentley Hart's uh, David Bentley Hart in that also be saved puts it this way he says uh this this actually might be a quote from another one of his essays, but he says, a higher understanding of human freedom is inseparable from a definition of human nature. To be free is to be able to flourish as the kind of being one is, and so to attain the ontological good toward which one's nature is oriented. Freedom is the unhindered realization of a complex nature in its proper end, natural and supernatural, and this is consummate liberty and happiness. The will that chooses poorly then through ignorance, malfeasance, or corrupt desire has not thereby become freer, but has further enslaved itself to those forces that prevent it from achieving its full expression. And so that's just that's just one example of the way that, to me, a kind of a philosophical argument now is brought to bear about, okay, if we're talking about freedom and, and free will, for me, um, you know, I hear uh, this from Christian philosophers or people bringing kind of a philosophical argument to the table that for me helped, uh, I guess, sharpen my thinking about what 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 actually constitutes a free decision. And, you know, how can we think of that in terms of ontology, teleology, uh, the the ultimate purposes of God and creation? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I I hate to say it, but this is like when when you read quotations from Hart, it feels to me like it just muddies the water, and, and I don't know what he he uses a lot of big okay. words, and and it doesn't, you know, I I wish I I know I'm just what I'm what I'm really saying is I wish he wrote more like an analytic philosopher. Um, I mean, he, anyway, I so I, I don't because I mean it sounds like if he he want he's wanting to say to be free is to be able to be in a position where you make choices that um, lead to flourishing or something like that, right? The teleos of, um, but that's not going to sound much like freedom. If, I mean, if that's supposed to be a sufficient condition for freedom, then God could just wire us. So that's what we choose. And then that's Look, not going to really sound like freedom to a serious libertarian. And well, that's uh, me for that matter. Well, you know, that's a criticism that I get from, uh, from people or challenge me and say, well, okay, fine. So God tortures people into being, uh, into union mm-hmm. with him. And, uh, and that would be something that would be bad if that's not something that, if that is not the end for which we are created. But if the end for which we are created is, is finally to experience that union and that fulfillment, then the purpose uh, you're saying, well, God could have then just created us to be automatic robots and, um, and just to, you know, just to, just to enjoy that, but apparently, uh, God's. Uh, if you're thinking along this line, then the, then as I think Talbot argues this, mm-hmm. that then what happens is that this experience that we have in life is our opportunity to learn, uh, and that God grants us such radical freedoms that it um, that we can do tremendous evil. But God draws the line then at evil, which is uh, which God cannot finally heal and turn to the good. The problem right. is that from that. From that point of view, God create God allows so much evil that a lot of people can say, "Well, if that's you know, there's no way that 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 amount of evil can we can recover. Anybody could ever recover that. Even 
even God redeeming the entire creation cannot justify the kind of evil that God permits in this creation. So it doesn't really solve all the problems, but for to me, it gives me a way to say, yeah, that God is really serious about us getting to learn learn the lessons by allowing us to to commit, you know, atrocities, um, but ultimately intends for both the perpetrator and the victim to come to a point of reconciliation and all of creation to share in some experience that somehow um, uh, makes everybody glad that they're a part of this creation, even those who have who have suffered greatly, and that God that the part of the price of this is that God then enters into creation to suffer uh, to suffer along with it. So God doesn't just you know stay at sixty thousand feet. Right. Right. God actually lands and 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 bears the brunt of the suffering that God has allowed and then bearing it in love on the cross then turns it around. And that's how we get all the healing and the reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, I think in the end of the day, I'm going to be on Talbot's side, but I, 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 I do, you know, the thought that part of maybe, maybe this is God's intention in creation, in creating, in wanting to create rational creatures um, who who are not going to be even subtly manipulated into a relationship with God, who are going to be allowed to make the choice of about their own eternal destiny. Um, and that if God is going to um, set the, I mean, set the game up in such a way that you couldn't do anything but choose to have reconciliation with God, then, I mean, this is the way some people put it, right? Then, then in, in a way, God isn't loving you as God might, because if God loved you as God would, um, then, then God would think that you shouldn't be, um, you know, in any sense, manipulated into being in this relationship. And, and, and part of what it means to not be in any way manipulated is probably too strong, but, you know, coerced is too strong. Um, but, you know, if if it's just the case that there's no way you cannot end up in a relationship with God, then it looks like you're not really free with respect to that relationship. And you know, on the on the people, the kind of free will theist uh, way of looking at things, um, that's kind of the whole point of creation: is people is is God having fellowship, or at least a point of creation, is having fellowship with rational free creatures who choose to be in relationship with Him. And so if, if you are going to end up in a relationship one way or the other, no matter what, then some people are going to say that that really undermines our, you know, our sovereignty and undermines our ability to even be responsible for a lot of what we do in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm not, not saying I'm ultimately... Yeah, and I, I, I think we're kind of... This, to me, is, a, is kind of an interesting back and forth discussion. I've thought of this, you know, too... Uh, and it's, you know, people say, well, we got to be able to, you know, for a relationship to be loving, it has to be chosen. You know, people will will sometimes say that to me and, and say, OK, well, then that, I would say that that then kind of rules out the possibility of parents having loving relationship with their children <laughs> because the children cannot choose not they cannot uh, reject that relationship. The child is born. The child is forever uh, the child of the parents. The parents have forever passed on whatever they have passed on to that child, it's irrevocable. So if they can't choose uh, that relationship, if, if the choice then to them is not, you know, they can't choose that, then I guess what you're saying is that, that having children is sort of an unloving act because you forced this relationship upon them that they did not ask for. I mean, certainly it's the case that a lot of, a lot of maybe not as young children, but a lot of children and parents end up not having relationships. So there's, it's not as though that's inevitable. I, I don't want that for anybody, but I mean, yeah, you know, well, I mean, they can choose, they can choose not to be in relationship with their parent, but they are still the child of that parent. Sure. Right. But, but I mean, the analogy I thought, I think is supposed to be just in the same way that in order for a relationship between creature and creator to be kind of a seriously free loving relationship, um, it needs to be freely entered. Um, in the same way, then the relationship between an adult uh, kid and um, uh, their parents must be freely chosen at the time, and it seems like that condition is met. The uh, one of the, another way that I've thought about this is that if 
um, you know, is that passage in the 17th chapter of Acts where Paul is talking to the these pagans in Athens, and he tells them about the God in whom we are all living and moving and having our being, and that God is not far from any one of us. And that's a profound thing, you know, because Paul's addressing these pagans and saying, mm-hmm. hey, we're all God's children. Even your own poets know about this. And this is the God in whom we are living and moving and having our being. And so what I what what I have come, I guess what what I've come to think is that God is love, that I am in God. I am in love. Essentially, mm-hmm. I am in love with everybody else. I am I am a child of this God. This is my identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of thinking of that as some kind of negative that has been, you know, foisted upon me. I think of it, I've come to think of it as sort of the ultimate gift that I've been given. And, and, and there's, this is maybe not a good analogy, but I'll just throw it out there that um, in our Declaration of Independence, you know, the idea is that there, there, there are these inalienable rights that have been given to us by God, among them, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that those were not granted by kings or governments and so cannot be revoked by them. But they are right. gifts that come, you know, directly from God. Right. So, you know, I don't hear people in the United States of America saying, oh, I can't believe that well, I've had this life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness thrust upon me. <laughs> you know, no, we say, oh, this is great. This is our birthright mm-hmm. as citizens of this, you know, as citizens of this country. And so I guess I would say that, well, this is my birthright as a child of God, that I have been granted this identity, and it's my privilege to then get to discover this uh, through the course of life and to learn ever more about the greatness of the love, it, which is the source and end of my source and end of my being. Right. So I guess I've just chosen to think of that as not an imposition, right. uh, but, uh, uh, but as, but as a beautiful gift that mm-hmm. I've been, that I've been given. And that's why uh, the title of my book is grace saves all. It, 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 that, so in other words, this whole thing is is grace, everything about it. There isn't anything that isn't grace and isn't anything that isn't love. And anything that ultimately happens within all of this uh, ultimately will will cohere uh, with that uh, right. ultimately. And, and to me, it was Talbot's book, uh, The Inescapable Love of God, which I read. And when I read that... Uh, to me, it was, I don't want to say that was the camel, that was the the straw that broke the camel's back, but I sort of felt myself sort of moving across, making a transition at that point. It's like, you know what, I think this really works, is working for me. And so that was about 10 years ago, and I've been kind of moving that direction ever since. And, and I, sometimes I run across people who, who have had similar experiences. And I read a book called uh, Flames of Love by a Methodist minister named Heath Bradley, and I, and I looked on the back of that book and it was interesting because you, your name appears on the back of that book. And I, I read that book and in his experience was having read Talbot's inescapable love of God and kind of having the same experience that we both kind of had the same experience with the book and then come to find out that you were the philosophy professor that apparently assigned that book to Heath. Uh, so, so you, yeah. you know, uh, so you don't have any compulsion about throwing throwing us into these <laughs> no, <laughs> into these discussions. Not a bit. And and again, I think. I mean, so let me. I, again, I, I you know, it's part of the job. I think of the philosopher to want to make sure that, like, you know, all positions get a fair hearing. And so I've been right. sort of playing devil's advocate here, trying to you know say, well, we should take seriously this other perspective because a lot of you know good smart people have interesting things to say about free will and, and all of that. Um, but I mean, one thing that, that, so I will say just in terms of the, not um, thoughts about salvation or hell or anything, but just in terms of the general free will determinism debate, um, I've always been, you know, kind of just thought, well, there's no way if, if any kind of causal determinism is true or theological determinism, if God is pulling the strings, you know, fully behind everything, um, that there's no way that, that we're really free. I mean, I, I, I have a certain right. libertarianism seems pretty plausible in that, that regard. Um, but, but reading Talbot's work actually kind of made me, and I actually, as an undergraduate, or sorry, undergraduate, my, um, 
I, I was a graduate student at Syracuse uh, for three years and then got my PhD at the University of Arizona. When I was at Syracuse, one of the people I studied with was a philosopher named Peter Van Inwagen. And he's um, well known in academic philosophy as being a defender of libertarianism. And so I kind of read his book and, and taken a oh, okay. him. So I was very, you know, I mean, uh, I've always been thought that that was, that had to be right. But, but reading Talbot's work um, ha- has made me unsure of one of the key principles of libertarianism, right? So the key, the key point is it's got to be the case for if you're really free for any given action, that at that moment you could have done that action or you could have refrained from doing that action. If somehow it's inevitable that you're going to do the action, then you're not free. That's kind of that's the fundamental libertarian kind of principle. But when when in reading and other things too, some John Martin Fisher, another philosopher who writes on some of this stuff, uh, he's been very influential. But in reading Talbot, and he's so he's talking about you know he's he's now he's responding to the the uh, devil's advocate that I've been earlier, right? And they say right. when they say you know, but you've got to freely choose it. You've got to freely choose it. And he says, well, okay, so so God is offering you you know reconciliation, salvation, use whatever term you want, and you turn it down. Talbot says, and again, I know you know this, but maybe some, not all your readers. Oh, yeah. Um, And so Talbot says, well, if if you're turning it down, it's got to either be, and maybe a combination, but either um, on the one hand, you lack some information that if you had, you'd make a different decision. Um, or maybe you've got some misconceptions that need to be cleared up because what's God's offering you is what's in your best interest. It's what will make you happy. It's what's morally right. right. It's what will make the world a better place. And so if you're turning it down, either it's you don't really understand what you're turning down um, or, you know, maybe and you've mentioned this before, um, you know, maybe your your selfishness or your pride or something is so strong that it's like an addiction to sin. That's a phrase that. Talbot uses sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so then he says, oh, so, so, so what could God do to try to get you on board without violating your free will? And he says, you know, it's the first thing that seems obvious is God could correct whatever misinformation you have. So if you think God is a horrible tyrant, well, God could correct that for you. And not mm-hmm. correct it in the sense of, you know, make you believe without rational, but God could show you that that's not true. Or if you have other things that you don't know about God, God could reveal that. And the thought is the more God reveals the more any rational person is going to see that, well, of course, this is the thing to take. It would be crazy to not accept this gift of reconciliation. Um, and so if it gets to a point where God has kind of corrected all your missing, uh, your you know false ideas, God has given you kind of all the relevant pro information that you would need to make the decision and you still don't, then that's that must be that you have you're acting on kind of an addiction to to sin or an addiction to mm-hmm. self or something like that and so then talbot uses the, the addiction metaphor and the or analogy and says you know look we really think if someone is really really deeply in the throes of addiction and when people in philosophy talk about this at least just for the sake of having a clear-cut thing to think about you, you're supposed to think suppose you were such a so bad off at the moment that there's no way you could, you know, not accept the drug if you were offered the drug that you're addicted to. It's just inevitable that you're going to do that. Well, clearly at that point, you don't have free will because the only thing that's making you decide to do it is this addiction, which is irrational. And so Talbot says, so if God's given you all the information you need, corrected any misunderstandings you have, but you're rejecting it just because you have this addiction to self, well, if God breaks that addiction for you, Right. Not necessarily by you know grabbing you and pulling you over into you know into the salvation or something, but God right. just kind of gives you back your rational free will. Right. That that is not, you know, that is granting you free will. Because now you have a will which can make the, the reasonable choice. And so the the idea here is um, you know, at the end of it, so God, let's say, you know, if suppose again you've got an addiction to to self and to, to being your own boss and all of that. Um, and if God is able to sort of not necessarily make that something that has no attraction to you, you're not addicted to it anymore. And then you see that, well, I've got all this reason to accept reconciliation with God. Um, it's surely in my interest. Again, it's the right thing to do. Um, I had no real reason to reject that. Now, now, now that you are no longer addicted, yeah. you'll see that. And so, so, of course you'll accept is this, this is the Talbot line, right? I mean, you, you yeah. couldn't, 
you couldn't kind of coherently describe a situation where a person is rational, knows that, let's say, option A as opposed to option B, option A is totally in his best interest, is the morally right thing to do, has no bad consequences. Option B is repulsive to him, um, is morally wrong, and he knows it's totally against him, his best interest, that if you're a rational being there, then you'll never choose the bad thing. Right. Um, and so, so what, what Talbot's in thinking about these things, and it has implications for thinking about God's freedom too, and, uh, actually, um, and thinking about these things, I thought, well, yeah, so if you're in that position where every, you know, you, you, you see that option A has everything going for it, option B has nothing going for it, and you're a rational person, then you're always going to do A. But it looks like you're free. It's not like there's some causally distant object or, or you know, set of conditions that's pushing you to do A, or that God is controlling your mind to make you do A. It's just that any rational person would do that if that's the thing that there's overwhelming reason to do and no reason not to do. Um, and so, well, so yeah. that, that sorry, one less. So that fundamental principle of libertarianism that it has to be the case that in exactly the same circumstance, you either could do the one thing or you could refrain from doing it. That looks like that's just not true here anymore. But it doesn't. Well, that, and, that, not yeah, and I'd say that's exactly the point to me at which the libertarian model becomes incoherent. Uh, well, okay. So, and and this gets me to um, the the we can kind of start to wrap things up a little bit, but. Sure. It kind of gets to, uh, for me, kind of on the ground. I mean, just working in people, working with people in recovery, and people who have been who have been acquainted with great mm -hmm. failures. As a matter of fact, all they've been acquainted with in life is failure. Mm -hmm. And you come to them and you say, "Listen, you're going to make it with God if you can just do the following things, and then or you're going to be able to get through this if you can just do the following things." Well, their response as I have experienced it has been, well, let me just save everybody the trouble here. I have failed at everything I've ever tried. And that's what I am. I am a failure and I'm going to fail at this. And if there's anything that God has that I can fail at, I'll fail at that too. And, uh, but what happened is when they would get in recovery, if they would come to the God of their understanding, who is a God who loved them infinitely and who never had it in mind for them to be an ultimate failure, but would be with them and help them to overcome even the greatest darkness and who would never leave. Mm. Once they began to have that as their God of understanding, it really helped them in their recovery. Mm -hmm. But then what would happen is uh, they would wonder if that God was part of Christianity. Mm. It is, you know, I actually had a guy uh, wonder, he was concerned about this because he said, you know, kind of the God of his understanding was the God who loves us and who is with us even in the greatest darkness and who will not let the darkness overtake us. Um, but he didn't know if that God was allowed in church. Jeez. Yeah. And so what I had to say was, well, as a matter of fact, yeah, um, not all Christians have believed that. Some Christians have believed that God never intended for all to be rescued and that God was, uh, that God was pleased to allow some to be overcome by the darkness somehow is the price of creation. Um, but there are those, and I'm among them, who, who have believed and do believe today that I can make a biblical, uh, theological, philosophically coherent argument that God actually, that, that God is light in whom there is no darkness at all. And, and he will ultimately, that light will ultimately prevail in all of our darknesses. And you can believe that way and be a Christian and be a member of First Christian Church. And for them, that was... I mean that was that was momentous. They thought they were they thought they were excluded from Christian. They thought they had a choice to make. I can believe yeah. in the God who is with all of us and who will ultimately who is ultimately greater than all of our darkness. I can right. believe that, but if, if, if I believe that, then I can't be a Christian, right? right. Because that's not the God of Christianity, right. right? And me just telling them that no, there is there have been Christians. There were Christians in the early centuries of the church. There there are wonderful Christian philosophers and theologians today who are making this very argument. Uh, and I can show you this, and mm -hmm. you can have this as your Christian understanding and get to be a member of a church. For them, you know that was that was life changing. And there are a lot of folks right now that are deconstructing from some form of fundamentalism that's yeah. got some kind of eternal torment doctrine built into it. Well, they're rejecting that 
And then they're trying to figure out, well, is there any coherent place I can land? Can, can I stay in Christianity? Right, or people right. who you know, are outside of Christianity who think it's only a hell religion. Right. That, you know, and so just even knowing that this is a discussion that's happening and that there are you know, uh, sincere Christian people who both have grown up inside the church. I didn't grow up inside the church. I came, you know, sort of into the side door, uh-huh. but I discovered that there within the Christian tradition, that there is a place for those of us who, who believe that God from the very beginning, uh, made a creation of love in which God's ultimate purpose was to share that love with all of God's children who would come into this creation. And that was what it was from the beginning. And that's how it will be in the end. And, and everything that happens in the middle is the part of the way that that God deems it best to work it all out somehow, even including coming into the story and becoming crucified. Right, 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 right. And and that what that did is it is it is it lifted people from despair to hope. Right, right. And that was very powerful. And that's you know it's part of the motivation for doing this podcast and to help people know about this that this is a possibility that this is an option. I think, I think that's really, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, um, the, the, the concept of, you know, well, the traditional Augustinian kind of Calvinist conception of God as, as someone who not only foreknows that a significant percentage of people will end up in eternal torment, but wills that. Yeah. And uh, um, it, it's just hard to think of that as being a God that's worthy of worship as far as I'm concerned. Right. Um, and, and yeah, no wonder people have, you know, come to have major misgivings and, uh, about whether or not there's a, a place for them in a, a church, if that's what the church teaches. Yeah. And, they can't and even it. if, you know, and, 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 and for me, like the, the Armenian God, you know, they say, oh, the Armenian God, oh, well, he loves everybody and wants everybody to be saved, but it's not going to happen. Well, th- then you sort of have to start asking, well, why is it not going to happen? You know, and it's hard to get a good answer. To that question. And that's, you know, that's kind of the, to me, that's when philosophy comes in and we say, okay, well, we have to start asking our questions now about, okay, what was God's intent and creation in the beginning and what's Mm -hmm. in the end? And then what logically coheres to all of this? Right. And uh, I appreciate the way that you don't just lightly dismiss um, other points of view. Um, And so I think that speaks to your training and ability as a, as a philosopher and a good teacher. You know, I get the feeling that if I took a class from you, I'd have to argue my case pretty strongly. <laughs> you wouldn't that even if even if you ultimately agreed with me that you would put me you would put me through it and really challenge me uh, the best yeah, that you could. I would. And, that, that would be my goal. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell uh, as we're just winding up here is that this journal that you do, the philosophy mm-hmm. and religion faith, is that the name of philosophy. faith and philosophy. Faith, faith and philosophy. philosophy, right? Faith and philosophy journal. Is this is this really like just an academic journal, or is it for anybody that wants to read it? Or most people, if if, if you're not in the guild, it would be pretty hard to get through. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it's very much a peer-reviewed academic philosophical journal. Um, philosophers, analytic philosophers, like to think we what we write is super clear, <laughs> but it's sometimes <laughs> clear, clear but really technical. Um, yeah. So I mean, I, it's it's um, open access. Anybody can Google it, and um, all of the, the journal started 1984, and every issue is online um, and available behind no paywall. Um, so okay, w- wouldn't cost anybody anything to take a look um, and see yeah. what you know what's going on in it. Um, and some you know, some articles are are certainly more accessible than some others. Yeah, and you're also part of the Christian Philosophers Association. Is that correct? Yes, Society of Christian Philosophers. Yes. And how does that, how does one gain admittance into the Society of Christian <laughs> Philosophers? Well, again, we've got a web page, um, and it you the two conditions are that you self-identify as a Christian and that you self-identify as a philosopher. Um, and so you what, don't have don't to, I need don't I have to have a PhD in philosophy or a degree in philosophy? Don't. No, oh, no. Okay. We actually have made it, you know, very open in that regard. Oh, so I could be a Christian philosopher. I have a, I have an MDiv and a DMIN, um, but I could say I'm, I could, I could become a Christian philosopher. <laughs> I guess so. You could become a member of this member I could of the society, society of member. Christian, right? Philosophers, um, <laughs> and it, it, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, and anybody would be welcome to. Uh, again, we have uh, the webpage, Society of Christian Philosophers. I, I don't. I should. I should have looked up exactly what the URL is, but um, easy enough to find. Um, yeah, Society they, of they, Christian they, Philosophers. They, they um, of course, the pandemic messed some things up, but I mean, typically we would have uh, three or so conferences a year in different parts of the country with some. Oh, okay. Reasonably well-known keynote speakers, well-known within academic philosophy, which is a yeah. pretty big caveat. Um, but yeah, it's a very active organization, a broad span, as you might think, given the conditions for you know being a member. Um, we've got a very strong evangelical group. We've got you know progressives. That's a uh, it, it's it's kind of a big tent. Well, uh, Dr. Seener, thank you for um, taking this time out of your academic schedule to uh, uh, to speak with us. And uh, I appreciate the rigor of your thinking. And uh, I hope that uh, people who listen to this discussion realize there's a maybe there's a there's a bigger discussion, a bigger philosophical discussion around Christianity that they might not have uh, known about. So thank you for that. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.